It's never been done before. So I need planning and large crew. Guns? Exactly. A lot of security. But the take? What's the target? Eight figures each. What's the target? When was the last time you were in Vegas? Welcome to the now-playing Ocean's Movie Retrospective Series. Why do this? Why not do it? When that perfect hand comes along, you bet big, and then you take the house. That's why we have to be very careful, very precise. You gotta be nuts, too. And you're gonna need a crew as nuts as you are. Who do you got in mind? Hosted by Arnie. I owe you from the thing with the guy in the place, and I'll never forget it. Jacob. Well, it's on the list. Here's the list. You think we need one more? You think we need one more? All right, we'll get one more. And Stuart. It'd be nice working with proper villains again. But what am I saying? You guys are pros. The best. I'm sure you can make it out of the casino. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You're in or you're out. Right now. Listener discretion is advised. So are you sure you're ready to do this? If you ever ask me that question again, Daniel, you will not wake up the following morning. Today we're discussing Ocean's 12, starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Bernie Mac, Elliot Gould, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Eddie Jameson, Don Cheadle, Shabo Kin, Carl Reiner, Julia Roberts, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Andy Garcia, Albert Finney, and Eddie Izzard, and Bruce Willis. <laughs> Topher Grace and Robbie Coltrane. I gotta cut you off at 12, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ocean's 12 is like Ocean's 50. (laughs) Directed by Steven Soderbergh. This is Arnie, the now playing co-host who always has enough people for a swinging priest. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, the host that would call Emily Dickinson a freak. (laughs) Ocean's 12. You know, I mentioned how much I really enjoyed Ocean's Eleven and how I went in and it just cheered me up and I picked it up as soon as it came out on DVD, watched it multiple times. Ocean's Twelve! Didn't see it. (laughs) I just... The buzz around this movie, the stench of death, the buzz was the buzz of flies. And I finally saw this on video when it was a new release in 2005. But man, this movie, everything I heard about it was like warning sirens to stay away. Yeah, I didn't see it either. I I had no desire to. I really enjoyed Eleven when I saw that, but I didn't want to come back again. And and I guess my fear was, oh, we're just going to see another heist. It's going to be the same thing. We're going to try to have that same magic. That There was no draw, and then the reviews started coming in. But I did eventually see this when it played on cable. Literally, all I remember is there was a hologram in the film. That's all I could tell you about Ocean's 12 before viewing it for this show. 
you know, as someone that made a point of trying to see everything Soderbergh was making at this time, I never saw this film. To me, it looked like a paycheck. You know, he had had a couple bombs, Solaris, Full Frontal. He'd made a show for HBO that didn't do well. Eh, time to make a sequel to my hit, right? I mean, Soderbergh didn't want to make Ocean's 12, right? Didn't you say that it was a standalone effort last time? Yes, it was a standalone effort, but... That doesn't mean Soderbergh didn't want to make Ocean's 12. It just meant he wasn't thinking about Ocean's 12 with Ocean's 11. But according to the commentary here, and I did listen to it, and it was recorded well after he knew what audience reception to this movie was, nobody but him wanted to do it. The cast or the studio, neither one was saying, Stephen, we want you to make a sequel to Ocean's 11. It was him who personally went to the studio and all the cast and said, I have this great idea for a sequel. It's based off of this spec script that's going around, and I think this could be the next Oceans film. So maybe he did want it because he'd had a couple of bombs there, and he felt like he needed to do some damage control, but this was his baby, and he defies anyone who says that he's less connected to an Oceans film than Sex Lies or Videotape or Solaris or any of his other features. He's heavily invested in this ocean's world and doing this one he was starting to envision it as a trilogy and stopping at three but he kind of already had his eyes on the next one when he was doing this one he does sound like a danny ocean going around gathering the crew trying to pull a con to get a bunch of money yeah millions from a studio that's the heist that ocean should have pulled I will say this. By this point, swing culture was dead. Everything that Ocean's Eleven was inspired to do, 2001, it was the tail end of cigar bars and Mambo Number 5 and swing dancing and all of that stuff. It was was right at the end of that trend, right? It is long dead by 2004. They have to go off something else. We have to forget Sammy and Frankie and everything. We have to go with a different vibe. Going to Europe... I think is the right idea. Making it about the guys not robbing Vegas, but in fact having to rob to pay back for the Vegas heist. I like that concept. I definitely like the idea of seeing Italy, France, having new villains, having a 12. Who knew what that was going to be? I had no idea, and still am not quite sure who the 12th (laughs) person collaborator on this job is. Is it Catherine Zeta-Jones? No, it's Tess. Tess, yeah. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Okay. I do agree with you, Stuart. On paper, this seems like the right way to go with the sequel. Go international. Go bigger. They don't need to pull another heist. They got Terry Benedict's money. So yeah, make this the revenge of Terry Benedict, where they have to appease him. They get caught like... It seems like this is the story that should be told, but as we get into it, it gets mucked up somehow. They lose sight of what they should be doing. Well, then let's get into it, Arnie. Give them the plot. It's been about three years since Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney, and his crew robbed the three casinos in Las Vegas. In the time since, they've lived underground, pursuing their own interests. Rusty, Brad Pitt, has bought a hotel. Frank, played by Bernie Mac, if you can blink and not miss him, (laughs) is proprietor of a nail salon. And Danny has settled down and remarried his ex-wife Tess, played again by Julia Roberts. But it all goes to hell when, one by one, all of Ocean's Eleven are visited by Terry Benedict, Andy Garcia, the casino owner they ripped off. He's demanding his $160 million back, plus interest. As most of the group has spent some or all of the money, not even counting the interest, the Eleven Thieves get together to try to figure out a job to get the dough. Though old man Saul, Carl Reiner, opts out saying he's too old to worry about paying Benedict back. 
But as the group plots a small-time job to get some money and court an informant for better gigs, they discover they've all been set up by an international thief known as the Night Fox. Real name, Baron Francois Toulour. The Night Fox was the apprentice of world-renowned iconic thief Lamarck. And when Lamarck even entertains the idea that Ocean and his crew may be the best thieves in the world, the Night Fox sets up a competition to prove who's really the best. Tallur makes this deal. He will race Ocean's Eleven to steal a Russian Fabergé egg. Stuart, one of your favorite MacGuffins, as I recall. Octopussy! <laughs> if Ocean and his men get the egg first, Tallur will pay off their debt to Benedict and concede that they are the best. If Tallur wins, though, then they will have wasted their time and Benedict will have them all killed. Complicating everything is Europol detective Isabel Lahari, played by newcomer Catherine Zeta-Jones. She is Lamarck's daughter, though she believes her father to be dead, and the knowledge she has imparted has made her very able to catch a thief. She had previously been involved with Rusty until she came close to realizing he was the perp of a theft she was investigating, so Rusty literally jumps out the window. The end of the movie is a massive plot that involves, well, most of Ocean's Eleven getting arrested, and only Linus, Matt Damon, and Basher, Don Cheadle, remain to try and steal the egg, which they try to pull off by, alright, try to follow me on this one, I think everybody knows, but just in case. They bring in Tess, again, played by Julia Roberts, to pretend to be the real Julia Roberts, the actress, pregnant, wanting to see the egg, but that is even complicated further when Julia Roberts' good friend Bruce Willis, played by Bruce Willis, happens to be in Rome as well. I have a feeling that's where we're going to spend a good portion of the conversation. <laughs> I see you got an axe to grind. <laughs> Long story short, it's a big con, and while the group appears to be arrested and the Night Fox gets the egg, it turns out that Ocean's 12, counting Tess, had the egg the entire time, thanks to the help of Lamarck himself. So he's number 13? In exchange for Lamarck's help, Ocean and Rusty reunited him with his daughter Isabel. Bested, Tallur pays off the gang's debt to Benedict, and Ocean's 12 are free as credits roll. Now, I will say this right up the bat. It sounds like we all had less fun watching this one than the last one. I, I don't think I'm showing too much of my hand to say that. I'm going to cite a big reason why initially from the first frame of this movie is it don't look right. Steven Soderbergh is the cinematographer as well as the director for this film. He was heavily into experimentation with high-definition video at this time. He made a very crappy-looking movie called Full Frontal right before this. He was still playing around with the format. And I just got to say, this movie, it's got smudgy colors. It's got a real grainy ugliness to it. I mean, everything that was classy, fun, and decadent about the last movie, it's stripped away in what we have feels like garish video improv. Wow, that's funny, because a lot of this is actually filmed. He went back and forth between cameras depending on the lighting situation. He was talking about how he and he mentioned another cinematographer liked to use natural light wherever possible to save time on setting up all the lighting rigs and being able to do a lot of shots pretty quickly, and how he was really not trying to let the actors do multiple takes but get everything in one, but... 
no, only a few shots here were done using high def. A lot of this was just filmed old school. Wow. I still will stand by the fact that this does not look like a film. And that, yeah, maybe it is the lighting scheme. Whatever he hoped to gain by having the stripped down, low lighting approach, they lose in class. And come on, no one wants to watch a cruddy looking Oceans movie. I mean, it's all about surface and sheen. We have to be fooled by the glitter and the glitz. Am I alone here? Did anyone else think this movie looked like ass? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. No, this is a downgrade. We're not in Vegas. It doesn't have the sparkly lights. I just chalked that up for them being over in Europe this time and it just <laughs> it not having that sheen to it. It's it's old world. It's dirty Europe, okay? Which it is dirty. If you ever go, it's never as clean as the movies make it out to be. So maybe I'm the one that's silly for wanting it to be glamorous. I don't know that it necessarily feels dirtier in Europe. This is a globetrotting film. The last one was in Vegas, all about Vegas. There were a few scenes in the beginning where Danny was in Atlantic City, but it really felt like a Vegas film. And here, the Ocean's Eleven are scattered all around, and they globe hop. We start in the States, and then they go to Amsterdam and Rome and Paris. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And... I don't know that there's necessarily a different feel from one place to the next in this movie. The only difference is the titles of the police officers chasing them. But I didn't think it looked bad, really. I mean, I'm watching the recent Blu-ray release, and it didn't look overly sheened or anything else. It didn't look too dark. My problems with this movie are not related to the aesthetics. Okay, well, but I'm guessing you have a few. Uh, the aesthetics are at least 40% for me, but okay, then there's the plot, which again, I want to <laughs> say, I like. I like the idea of bringing Andy Garcia back. Somehow he's found out who ripped him off. What, we were three years later, I think? They're a little fuzzy on this. This movie came out only two years after. They flash back three and a half years to some time before. It's It's somewhere between two and three years, I think. Okay, but the point is, time has passed for the guys to blow some of their spending, and yeah, they don't have the money to pay back. Plus, he wants interest, the dickwad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely three years later because Danny and Tess, they're celebrating their second, third anniversary. Oh, yes. I want to have fun in these films. That's what I love so much about Ocean's Eleven. I, I kind of like this opening montage where we go all over the United States to catch up where all these characters have been. You know, I'm, I'm not glad to see Tess complaining about the colors of paint. I, I don't know if Julia Roberts has got that chip off her shoulder at the beginning here. <laughs> but as we go around, we go to Provo and we see Virgil and Turk at this Mormon wedding. And we get to see Frank owning a nail salon. I think my favorite is Livingston trying to do stand-up comedy in New Orleans. Oh, and he was terrible at it, yes. too. It was really funny. I think that's what shows why Terry's such an asshole, is he lets him finish the routine <laughs> before he approaches him about repaying the money. It's like, no, you bomb first, you're destroying yourself, then I'm going to take you down another notch. I do like this beginning. I like getting the band back together. I'm a fan of the Blues Brothers. I like that kind of movie where you're going around getting them. Last time, it was Ocean. This time, it's Benedict. That kind of works for me. Andy Garcia, Stuart, you said last time that Garcia kind of had that Clooney vibe and a darker tact. So here, having kind of the ocean doppelganger go around and do this really worked for me. Yeah, I like the opening of this film. I'm happy to see the gang back, even though Meta Knowledge let me know that the reason Julia was sitting there complaining about paint cans, something had to hide that middle, right? I mean, baggy shirts and paint cans... Add a big purse and you've got the trifecta. 
You know, I don't follow tabloids, but I imagine everyone knew that she was pregnant. She had twins, I think, right? I don't know much about her personal life, but it was something that would have been known at the time. The fact that she gave them the few weeks to make this movie, I guess that was just a favor to her friend Steven Soderbergh, right? As far as I can tell, she was wanting to do it and had agreed to it before she even knew she was pregnant or was telling anyone she was pregnant. So it was kind of a, we had it written one way, and now we have to write it another. But right away, just does Tess need to be here? I know she was a big part of the last one, but Catherine Zeta-Jones, too. We kind of opened the movie with that going on and the background with Rusty. This, if Ocean's Eleven was a Thanksgiving meal, this is like overly stuffed, the turkey's busting at the skin. There's so many characters to service in the original Eleven cast. Now here we are. You uh, joked that it was like Ocean's 50. It kind of feels that way with as much as is going on here. And I think while I'm happy to see the 11 get back together, they don't get well serviced. Saul's like, screw y'all, I'm quitting and leaves. <laughs> Bernie Mac, well, this wasn't their fault. Half his scenes ended up on the cutting room floor and he got ill during the shooting. So they just literally placed his character in the bathroom for half the time. Yeah, and in jail the second half, like everyone's going to end up in jail. They all end up together. He's in some prison, I don't know, in some other country. I'm not sure, but like, where's his white jack scene? Where, where's that denim like a jean scene? Like, I, I needed something from Bernie, and I feel like he's so disserviced in this film. It breaks my heart. Yeah, some of them just aren't here. So the question is, would you have been fine with Ocean 6? Would it have been too much a cheat to bring only some of them back for the job? I mean, it wouldn't work for the plot, because the whole point is they have to get everyone back from the original heist because they all owe money. But if they had a different storyline and they just had six characters that they gave all great subplots to, is that better? Absolutely. I'd rather not have them here than bring them on to cameo and pretend they're part of the plot. I just don't think that this movie is Ocean's 12. This movie is really all about Matt Damon, Julia Roberts, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Oh, no, no, I disagree. It's a, it's Brad Pitt's movie this time. Exactly, Stuart. Brad Pitt plays George Clooney in this one. Now he's the one spying on the ex girlfriend and I, it almost feels like they were taking that whole test storyline and now it's Catherine Zeta Jones job here and Brad Pitt just doing that Danny Ocean thing. Not almost. That is what they've done. I mean, yeah, the last time we found out that George Clooney went through all of that heist, not really to get rich, but just to win his wife back. I think that a large part of the shenanigans that these 12 go through is so that Brad Pitt can get back together with Catherine Zeta-Jones. I take it as that's why he takes them all to Amsterdam. I don't know much beyond that. I don't think he had any part in dropping dime on the crew to Benedict. I mean, that was all the Night Fox. Everything that occurs here in the beginning, the strings are being pulled by the Night Fox, another new character. Yeah, but we do see at one point Russ tells Frank, don't tell Danny, alluding to Isabel being, I mean, th there's something going on. We, we know he's there looking for Isabel. He's trailing her. Yes. Now, but now we're going to get a, a twist in the plot. Another character with this Night Fox. Too much for me. We'll get there when we get there. But for now, you're right. Yes. Terry Benedict has found out because he was tipped off. We don't even know who it is yet. They've got to pay $96 million and they don't have even half of that. Actually, they need to pay... A almost 200 million. They're 96 short. 
Oh, okay. Well, even worse. So Matsui is going to help them out. A Italian guy in Amsterdam with a Japanese name. And <laughs> suddenly the problem isn't the plot. It's the joke. Yes. What the hell is going on? <laughs> Why do these people think that they can make the script up? This feels like improv. Come on. Well, here's the thing. Like, okay, Linus, I guess we're supposed to care about Linus wanting to lead this group. We're supposed to care about Matt Damon. He is Jason Bourne, after all. He's a big star. Earlier that year, he had done the second Bourne film. We want to see him in, in a large role. So it makes sense that they would have him fighting for leadership. It felt to me like when he's saying, I want a bigger part, it's like Matt Damon in contract negotiations. Sure. Yes. It's like, come on, guys. I'm Matt Damon. I, I'm as big as you, Brad and George. But yeah, this whole scene, like where they go to meet Matsui and they have to say Oof. some kind of cryptic phrase. I'm not laughing. I'm not even mm. smiling. Not laughing. I'm scowling. I laughed once, and that was when Matt Damon finally says something, and then they come out and say, you just called his niece a whore. I mean, that was funny to me. But yeah, this, sadly, was all scripted. This was not improv. This is a new writer. This isn't the same writer as last time. You feel that in every ounce of this. And I mentioned this was based on a spec script he'd been shopping around since 2000 about one thief versus one thief, kind of. Was it the Thomas Crown Affair that kind of had that going on? And No, there were a lot of them. I don't know, Assassins with Banderas and Stallone? I mean, <laughs> we, we could name a lot of films uh, about common and assassins in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, this was about two thieves, the best American thief going up against the world's best thief. Here, though, what they had to do was expand it to 11 characters. They took one character and cut him in 11 parts. And you could just feel this total difference going on here. And yeah... I'm not laughing at the jokes. I'm laughing at some of the performances. I mean, when they bring Topher Grace back, that was kind of an amusing moment. You know, I try to look at the positive points in this. And when Rusty comes in and sees Topher there and he's like, no reason to go all Frankie Muniz on me. And Frankie Muniz wasn't even a thing in 2004. He is time and fast. Come on. Topher Grace saying he phoned in the Dennis Quaid movie. I mean, I'm laughing at those jokes. What was the Dennis Quaid movie? In Good Company. Yeah. Okay. Scarlett Johansson was in that. I actually enjoy that film. Yeah, it's a good movie. But you're getting to something here. I feel like in the absence of legitimate swagger and fun, we have a lot of movie references in this one. We have a lot of people making comment about Hollywood and movies. I mean, the biggest one being Julia Roberts playing Julia Roberts. But this Matsui thing is called Lost in Translation. Someone's quoting Miller's Crossing. Uh, When Brad Pitt catches up with Catherine Zeta-Jones, it's a visual straight out of the third man. I feel like Soderbergh is just kind of riffing on movies. I know that he is a film historian and he's done a lot for movies and and he respects movie culture, but he didn't write jokes here. He's got people doing callbacks. I can see why you'd think this is ad-lib though, because doesn't this just feel like the dialogue actors would ad-lib around each other? Yeah, the the one scene where Linus decides to get all PC and rebuke everyone for using the term freak. That Come on, that had to be improv because it was so unfunny. There's no way someone wrote that thinking it was humorous. Not only did somebody write it, but then a committee approved it. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's I can understand it being written, and then you perform it, and then the fault then is the editor, right? I mean, you don't keep it in the film. And so much of these early scenes, as much as I like this crew in the beginning, yeah, they don't seem to have a function in the plot, and they're not very entertaining together anymore. That What they've been given, basically, is to break into a house. There's this agoraphobic freak who is played by Jerome Crebe. We've seen him before. Van der Wooden, recluse. He's got some kind of parchment from the Dutch East Indian Trading Company. The first stock certificate ever, yeah. Who cares? Yeah, all of this will mean absolutely nothing. I don't even think we see that character again. But the whole point is they got to break into this house. I like the con. I like the idea that they have to lift it up in order to get a sight line to, to slide in through the window. Because a hot air balloon is too much trouble. Do you like this con? Like, they are going after two and a half million dollars, and they're told if they pull this off, they'll get a bigger job. This is more impossible. Like, they are ready to give up. They just broke into, like, the most secure vault ever, and they're like, there's no way. We don't have line of sight to the window. We give up over two and a half million. Come on. And why would you even bother at two and a half million? I like when one's like two and a half million a piece. No, total. Everybody's like, screw it. Even the Ocean's Eleven are thinking this is a waste of their time. It had to have cost at least one million to raise that house right yes. i mean it is euro so i mean that's like double american dollars but i i get your point it's small change they, they're gonna have to do a year of these in order to pay back andy garcia and he's only given them two weeks but yeah i like the idea that they're slumming it i would be fine with this movie being a series of cons of smaller things instead of one big heist and that this were the first of many they could have gone that way and i would have been happy with it. that's what you get i mean that's literally what you get in this movie this is a series of small heists. Not really, because after this one, we find out that Night Fox already beat them to it, and he's got a, a real heist that they both have to do. It's a competition. They don't go to Ireland. They want to, but their their identities are soiled. Everyone uh, in Interpol finds out who they are, why they're there, largely because Rusty reconnected with Catherine Zeta-Jones. And this is where I start losing interest in the movie. Like, now, all of a sudden, it's not about Terry Benedict going after his money. Like, that simple. Ocean's Eleven was simple, and it was entertaining. Here, th they want to do some twist now, and it gets convoluted. Now, no, this is a competition. I don't know. Were Freedom Fry still a thing? Is that why the Night Fox is French? Snooty French are always a thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's all <laughs> every perennial. Exactly. And I mean, down to Pepe Le Pew. But <laughs> I, I also want to say, Vincent Cassell is a great actor and a huge European star. Not known to American audiences, but that by this point, he is the Tom Cruise of France. He was in a great film called Read My Lips. He was in a uh, impossible-to-forget movie called Irreversible, Crimson Rivers. He is a big international star waiting for his breakthrough. I think they did well in casting the Nightfall. I like him in this, and damn, he does some physicality later on. The <laughs> calisthenics he does. I don't know if that was green screen wire work or if that's all him, but either way, kudos. But as far as this whole convoluted love story goes that you were talking about, Jacob, I think some of the problem here is Catherine Zeta-Jones. I... <laughs> we gotta go back there again. She's no Julia Roberts, but you may be right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she is an actress who I really liked in the 90s. I mean, Zorro and High Fidelity and those. And then something happened in the 21st century. Where the phone she commercials. She became that shill for AT&T. 
And the whole, I guess it happened when she married Michael Douglas. Yeah, she became Michael Douglas's baby maker. I don't think that helped her PR image. We talked about this in Red, too. You can go back to that show if you must. But yeah, she had this hoity-toity air, and all of a sudden, it just, she looked like she was slumming it in cheesy movies, and she had no class anymore. Actually, I feel the opposite. I feel like she thinks she's above this like she's in a movie with george clooney and julia roberts and yet she's acting like a diva on this you know it it just there's something about her performance here that makes me feel she is not one of the group no she comes off like she's acting in an actual like crime thriller like something with suspense not this feel-good party movie that she's actually in and she had just done one yeah we're where she does the ass under the ropes thing. But here's the thing. Okay, if this is a repeat of George Clooney and Julia Roberts' romance in the last film. And she's just as unlikable as Julia Roberts in the last film. Okay, that was my question. Is she a step up? Or is, does she have more chemistry with Brad Pitt than Julia did, well, in any film, really, with George <laughs> Clooney? Yeah, I don't think there's chemistry. I think she's a slight step up. I do. I yeah. She's playing a law enforcement person and okay, I buy that that's why she's kind of stiff, but I don't care about this relationship. I don't want to see these two get back together. Just like I didn't care about Tess and Danny in the last film. They're two good-looking people that just don't seem to belong together. She was a, a one-night stand. She was something that Rusty was hanging on 3 years ago, but love of his life, he didn't marry her. He wasn't he didn't even have a ring. You know what I mean? At least uh, George Clooney can say that he was married to test, but this didn't seem like a permanent attachment in any way. No, I think she's actually a step down, and that's really something given that wow. I think that I Did usually- you hear what we said about Julia Roberts last week? <laughs> were you on the show, Arnie? You were there, right? <laughs> right. But I didn't Bernie Mac it, no. But I think that in the last one, Julia Roberts just looked so unhappy. Here, Catherine Zeta-Jones just acts like she's in a totally different movie than everybody else. And what's funny is she had not long before this done a movie that I actually like, although I probably stand alone on this one. It's a Coen Brothers movie, Intolerable Cruelty. Oh, yeah, yeah you probably alone. do stand alone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's probably why she got the gig, hanging out with Clooney. I'm thinking so, and she's playing the same character here that she played there, though, and it's... She's playing it the same way. And I don't think a Europol police detective should be played the same way as a snooty rich woman. I just never see her as funny. And I guess she is kind of the straight woman here. She is the one busting balls. But I think we are supposed to be laughing or at least feel warmth. And that I don't get. So she makes a pretty good foil. Yeah, if this were a thriller, but given how lightweight this movie is, and given that so much of it is about getting her back together with Pitt, yeah, it's just sort of a failed enterprise. We we can't care about that plot. And the reason I say she's a step down is even though I didn't like Julia Roberts in the last one, I liked Danny enough and believed his motivation enough to want him to get with her. Right. Here, I could give a shit less. I think that's fair. Yes, the setup is much, much worse this time, even though, yeah, chemistry-wise, it's about the same. But she is the one that actually 
gave Brad Pitt the idea for raising the house. She has studied the greatest thief of all time, Lamarck, Max Schulman, and fed him all of these stories that he's probably used to further his career. She probably helped him become the con man that he is today. So I guess it's ironic that she's able to catch him for those reasons. She knows it's him as soon as she's investigating the break-in, right? Because of the boot print? Well, no, that's how they figure out it's Frank because it's a size 14. It's Oh, okay. She has a random flat. Like here, she has some kind of, I don't know, telekinesis, some superpower. She has the shining. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking of like face off in those really cheesy, gimmicky action films. Like she closes her eyes. There's, I think it's Willem Dafoe, maybe Boondock Saints, plays the classical music and, and recounts the entire crime scene in his head by dancing around. Like that's how she comes off here. I'm like, no, this isn't working. This is not a detective. Now we got some like superhero going on, being able to figure it all out. I don't understand her methods because I don't really understand this plot. It's the editing. They do a lot of like flashing back and flashbacks within flashbacks that it really confused the hell out of me. And I get that you want to be clever in these kind of movies. You want to think you have the handle on something and then, oh, it's spun. And aren't we surprised and delighted? But oftentimes, I just didn't know what the hell was going on. When we see this house break in, we see Don Cheadle pull the trigger and then she finds out and then she has a memory of Brad Pitt and... Meanwhile, they're cutting back and forth with the real break-in. I can't tell what's truth and what's memory. I was really confused by that, too. When he pulls that trigger and it cuts away, I'm like, did he miss? Am I supposed to think he missed? (laughs) What the hell is going on? How does a crossbow undo a security system anyway? I'm glad they eventually flash back. They jump forward then just to give us a flashback to show us how it all went down. But... It is a little confusing. Also, just to make sure I understand this, they fired a crossbow bolt, but then as part of the heist, even after they found out they got their second, they went ahead and did the repair work to hide that? Yeah, I believe it's Rusty's busting out paints to match the wood grain (laughs) of the wall. Come on. I couldn't tell. And even though they found out that they didn't get the item, I guess he started painting away before (laughs) they found out that Night Fox had beat him to it. Why would you even need to do that? Because they're going to know you were in there because the stock certificate is gone. (laughs) So what's the point of patching the hole that kind of shows that a wall was damaged? I don't know that somebody would be able to look at it. It's not like a bullet hole where you can match the caliber. They're not going to look at it and go, it was a crossbow bolt. Obviously, they raised the building. Uh, They would have done better to leave the iPhone or whatever recorder is there from the Night Fox admitting that he was the one that took it, right? I mean, there's the proof. They're exonerated as long as she finds that. But no, they keep the competition with Night Fox out of her knowledge. She kind of figures it out anyway, but they're not keeping her in on the plot. No, that's where The Shining comes in is because she's sitting there. She looks at it and instantly realizes they raised the building to do it. But then just seconds later, she realizes that they were beat to it by the Night Fox, who coincidentally, she happened to be giving a lecture on when she was (laughs) called to this robbery. Yes, and he just happens to be the apprentice to Lamarck, the one that she reveres as the greatest criminal never caught and who will just happen to be her father. There's a lot of happenstance in this movie. 
Well, yeah, and now we get this big exposition scene. We find out Night Fox is the one that told Terry Benedict everything. Yeah, I figured Benedict would have known on his own, but he, he had to be tipped off, I guess. And so Terry's not even going after his own money. They say repeatedly, he got the insurance payoff. He doesn't need this. And you just figure, well, because Benedict was such a dick in that last film. Of course, he's going after the money anyways. But no, he's a pawn of the Night Fox as well. Well, if we're in Europe, I think I do want a European villain. If we stayed in America, then Terry can be the one that figured it all out and busted their balls. But it makes Terry look weaker. But then again, Terry is never as cool as he seems to think he is. I'm totally fine with going with Night Fox. I just want to state that I like Vincent Cassell. I'm okay with Andy Garcia playing a minimum role here. That Yeah, basically, he's just the guy that wants to get paid waiting in the Bellagio. And he's the force of danger. It doesn't undercut that character to put him in this role because, well, the Night Fox is the adversary. It's Benedict who's the enforcer. Benedict is going to kill them all. And now that he's found them, none of them have any question in their mind that, yes, he will kill us. None of them are thinking, let's go underground again, except for Saul, who may have been the smarter one. I mean, they <laughs> went three and a half years without him finding them, but now they'll never escape him again. So they do that in a way that minimizes the character, but keeps him a credible threat. He's given him this arbitrary two-week deadline for whatever reason it can't be extended. That's the ticking clock. Well, he didn't want to give them that. He wanted to kill them all. As part of the condition for getting the information, the Night Fox demanded the two weeks. So the Night Fox set that for the time frame for their competition. Oof. I would have liked, have Benedict still be in charge. Have him gone and hired the Night Fox to keep foiling him because he wants to be able to kill him. I don't know. Do something like that. The fact that this is now a competition, I think it's a ridiculous competition because the Night Fox is the better thief. He does everything alone. He doesn't have a group of 11, 12, 13, maybe 50 people behind him pulling these off. I, I think the fact that this now becomes a competition is ridiculous. Well, when we actually see what he can do, I'm impressed. I mean, damn, when he goes into a museum and gets through the laser show yeah i mean he is the best one they're absolutely right what takes george clooney 10 other guys uh, he can do on his own that is impressive and i want to just call out one thing that i absolutely must praise in this movie and that's the score the score to this movie is absolutely aces it's got that european flavor and the music when he's doing that is like some european cover version of inagata devita it is? Yes, it is. Listen to it. It's bum, 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 bum. I mean, it's really good. Oh, that's funny. I didn't catch that. But I do love the music. And I, and I don't think I cited it last time. But yeah, David Holmes does a good job with straddling the difference between that old swinging sound and modern electronic music. I think that he nails it. And this movie has a bubbly, fun score just like the last one did. Oh, see, I didn't like the score. It felt too Vegas to me, and we're not in Vegas. We're in Europe. Oh, no, no. There are moments like that in a God of the Vita thing you called out that I enjoyed. But, you know, when they first go to Amsterdam and they're doing this montage of Amsterdam with the Vegas-like music, it just came off weird to me. I never really got a Vegas feel on this music. I really think that a lot of times it went too European. So much of it sounded like French cafe music, but it still was a little bit more upbeat and things. So I liked it better here. I liked the Vegas one last time for what it did, but here this actually, when you can't really pay attention to the characters or the plot, I was really grabbing onto the music. Yeah. 
And the characters were what made the movie last time. It, they, it can't be undersold that individually they were all cool, and together they were even cooler. Here, when the Amazing Yin gets lost in the baggage claim, do they even need to find him? Isn't that just an, another annoyance? Like, Why was he even in the bag? Why couldn't he ride with them? I guess they didn't feel like he could look like a soccer player. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, Catherine Zeta-Jones knows about Danny, Yen, and Frank. So, but Danny doesn't have a disguise. He just goes out. I guess when you're George Clooney, you do not contort yourself to get inside a gym bag. Yep. But what happens? What is Livingston doing with surveillance? What is Basher doing with exploit? I, I like that whole setup that they each had their speciality. And here, they don't seem to know what they're doing the entire time. And it doesn't really change when we find out what happens. I'm going to go ahead and jump to the end just for the sake of clarity, because this second half of the movie is just as confusing to me as the first half. But they already have the egg before they get to Rome. They have somehow found out that this Fabergé egg that is a competition to get is going to be carried by some unmarked guy with a backpack on a train. And they got all this from Lamarck himself. Okay, I didn't catch that. Thank you. All right. But Linus is the pickpocket. Linus gets it because some other ones distract them. Everyone else's job is just to go to jail. This entire heist, I hate it. <laughs> I hate the reveal here. You know, you give me a twist. There should be a sense with a mystery, a, a heist, whatever. There should be a sense, even if you're going to throw in a twist, that I should be able to figure it out. I figured it out last week with Ocean's Eleven that they had messed with the cameras. Here, there is no way. We're going to watch 90 minutes of bullshit to find out the heist was done. Who knows when? It doesn't matter. Everything you see in this film doesn't matter. Yeah, that is the killer on this, is last time they dropped a couple of hints. I called out how they said that that safe was only partially for practice here. Yeah, this entire ending, they could have just walked up to the Night Fox con, got the egg, we're done. No, they put on this whole show. Is it to snag Catherine Zeta-Jones? Is that the whole point now? Because in exchange for Lamarck getting them the egg, they have to get Isabel back to Lamarck. Is that why they go to jail and bring in Linus's mom? I think there's two reasons, neither of which justifies the shenanigans. But yes, the two reasons are one, yes, Catherine Zeta-Jones, who not only do they want to get back to the man that hired them, Lamarck, but again, I say Brad Pitt is trying to win back. If he ruins her career, she'll have no choice but to hang out with a con man. Isn't that romantic? Spoiler alert, she doesn't return for 13. <laughs> so it's not the love of the ages. <laughs> but I also think Matt Damon, he's been crying that he wants a leadership role. They give him a leadership role. Admittedly, it's to pilot the Titanic. He is supposed <laughs> to lead the crew into a mission that won't succeed. Isn't this whole scene bullshit? Again, they know. They know they have the egg. Why are they talking like this amongst themselves? Yeah, to fool us. <laughs> that doesn't make sense, though. Oh, yeah, to fool us. That is poor writing. Come on. Yeah, that really, you have to have an internal verisimilitude about this kind of plot. And in the last time, they wrote it off. The reason that they were all pretending to kick out Danny was just to test Linus and to put Linus through the paces. It's a bullshit reason, but it's a reason. Here, there is no reason. They fly Tess from America where she's safe. Benedict doesn't want her. She wasn't part of the Eleven. Bring her into harm's way to pretend to be, all right, here we go. She's pretending to be 
Julia Roberts. Does this blur a line for anyone else that just shouldn't be crossed? Why doesn't Danny Ocean pretend to be George Clooney? I, I do feel like they could have just ran with that and unraveled this whole film. It might have helped it because this is really the only time I think I'm smiling. Julia Roberts seems perfectly fine. I think she's having fun when she's playing herself. Don't ask her to be anyone else. But when she's <laughs> Julia Roberts, she seems to be having fun. She seems different on screen. I agree. I will say this. We would have been watching this in 2004 at the advent of the reality TV age. A time when the Osbournes are going to play themselves for TV. TV audiences, or Spike Jones is going to make a movie with Meryl Streep in which she plays herself as an orchid-sniffing crazy woman. I mean, we did see those lines being blurred in the early part of the millennium, and this would have just been another one, a less successful one. Yeah, it just seems different, though, in this kind of fiction film where it's everybody's commenting how she looks like Julia Roberts, and yet it can't be brought up. Linus being the newcomers, the one who keeps going, doesn't she look like, and nobody will say it. I think that they're embarrassed. I know Soderbergh on the commentaries, like, he was loving this. But when they finally say the name Julia Roberts, they don't have it in English. They have someone say it in French, and it's subtitled, so that it can just slowly sink into the audience. It's up there like the name in the front of the titles, right? It's printed on the screen like it should be. If she looks like Julia Roberts, why doesn't everyone else look like everyone else, for Christ's sake? If you got George Clooney, Brad Pitt, and Julia Roberts in one place, I think they could walk off with a Fabergé egg. (laughs) (laughs) The credits do introduce Tess as Julia Roberts. That's how it reads at the end there. Ha ha ha. You know, it's just too clever. Like so much about this movie, it's trying too hard for too little of a laugh. I mean, I didn't hate this. I guess like the way you guys are sweating it, but it's not that funny to hear her go, Julia Roberts was in Four Weddings and a Funeral, and She's insecure. Well, that's good because actresses are insecure. I mean, this feels like Hollywood ribbing on itself. And that's it's very inside and not really translatable as fun in the same way as the last movie was. You could watch the 2001 Ocean's Eleven without any knowledge of the Frank Sinatra movie. But here, if you're not steeped in pop culture, I don't know what you would make of this heist. I do kind of like the complication that... Bruce Willis just happens to be there. I mean, that adds to some humor. The other really funny joke here is everybody telling him how they knew the ending of The Sixth Sense. I did know the ending of The Sixth Sense halfway through the movie, so I don't know how that movie made almost 700 million (laughs) worldwide, Bruce, but that was amusing. Again, though, look at who we are. We're guys who come every week and talk for a couple hours about movies. We read variety and all this. This should be up our alley. Hell, I really enjoyed the Catherine Zeta-Jones movie, America Sweet hearts and this was all that (laughs) yeah you (laughs) love this stuff i i do want to emphasize i can last action hero anytime hollywood is riffing on itself you're usually there right there with it laughing right along so for you to not be enjoying this a lot it sounds like is a little surprising to me no, I'm going to say this is the stuff I enjoyed the most. Bruce Willis and Julia Roberts as herself, not as Tess. Or I guess Tess is Julia Roberts. <laughs> this, I'm smiling. I'm amused. Again, this seems to just be all improv riffs, but I don't care at all about the story. I haven't cared about it for at least a good 45 minutes. So yeah, distract me with something a little bit more entertaining. And why would you care about it when the men themselves don't care about getting away with it? They want to be thrown in jail. So yeah, exactly. This is a bit. This, again, it feels like improv. And 
I think the reason I don't like it is this is a little bit of a Hollywood spoof. That's the jokes I'm enjoying. But it's just that it all is based upon the fact that Tess is a lookalike for Julia Roberts. It just creates some kind of circular logic that asks more questions than it answers. I think, though, I might go with it in a movie that serviced the other characters better. But like you just point out, all the 11 are in jail except for Bash and Linus. And Saul, he's playing the doctor. Oh, and Saul. Yeah, Saul came back. Remember, Saul wasn't in this movie for the most of it. It's very confusing because he's at the museum getting in a wheelchair and I thought they arrested him, but all of a sudden he's not arrested. And none of them are really arrested because this was all a scam by Linus's mother to make them appear arrested. So the fox thinks they're out and he won't try to, I don't know. They're really arrested. I mean, they're in a real jail. I mean, Catherine Zeta-Jones breaks protocol to get them in jail. And so that part isn't fictitious. But yes, they're gotten out because Matt Damon has connections. If the whole plot was for Russ to end up with Isabel, the fact that she just fakes a signature, I don't know if that's really fireable. Maybe he gets suspended without pay for a bit. Yeah, she caught the thieves. You would think she would be rewarded for this. So she had to fake a signature to do it from an Italian cop at that. I mean, who cares? I don't even know how they could count on her bending this rule to get them. I mean, that's what I think we're expected to think, that Russ knows that she is going to cheat to put him in jail. And because she cheats, she's going to be screwed out of her job and thus has no future except with him. For a film that is extremely confusing, extremely Mm, muddled, like there's this whole thing about a hologram egg that they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for that doesn't matter because that was just another diversion. But yeah, the fact that Russ shows up and is like, hey, Isabel, get on this plane with me, you know, we just had the FBI, fake FBI. It's Linus's mom. I I wasn't sure if she's a real FBI agent, just doing him a favor, but I guess she's a con woman as well. And now Russ is like, yeah, just get on this plane with me. You don't have a future. You're going to get fired or whatever. So just come with me. Be a criminal. Okay. And one more thing about that hologram. I thought that was your 12th. Eddie Izzard. He would have been a fun one to (laughs) add to the cast. He's the guy that designs the hologram that's supposed to stay there after they've grabbed the real egg. I think that counts, right? He should be the 12th, not Julia Roberts. I don't know. He just sold them stuff. I mean, it gets a little iffy there. But I mean, yeah, you've got so many people in this cast. Bruiser's even going to come back to help get Frank out of jail in the separate jail from everyone else. (laughs) Is he the guy that was beating up George Clooney in the first movie? Yeah. I wasn't sure about that. He he was a big, bald guy with tats, but it wasn't immediately identifiable. I'm telling you, the ground was shifting underneath me in this one. I felt like I was in quicksand. I had very little sense that I had a hold on what was going on in this movie. And you don't want to feel that way. You like to have the rug ripped out beneath you, but you don't want to feel like you're free-floating through space. I mean, I had no idea what was going on till this movie kind of just stopped. I watched it twice for this review because the final twist, that all of this was literally for nothing, that they had the egg the entire time, that was something that was whiplash-inducing. All I remembered coming back to this movie was Julia Roberts as Julia Roberts. That was my only memory. I didn't remember Europe. I didn't remember eggs. I didn't remember the fox. I remember Julia Roberts as herself and a feeling of general anger. And (laughs) so when I watched it and the reveal came, I'm like, all right, I got to go back and figure out what the point of this was. There was no point. The point of this is Steven Soderbergh decided, let's get my friends back together and let's party in Europe for a few weeks. That's my best guess. 
It does feel that way. And you know what? Not a complaint if I was smiling. If I was laughing and these cons were good and the jokes were funny, that the plot is frivolous, well, you could say the same thing about the movie last week. But everything is meaningless. It's not only frivolous, it's meaningless. It has no impact on me. I'm not smiling. I'm not laughing. It doesn't even feel... Like it has a nice tie-up at the end. This movie, despite being called Ocean's 12, I mean, I mentioned how several of them were absent throughout. I feel like we're not giving many of these actors their due. We barely touched on the Mormon twins, but this movie doesn't really give them their due. They show up for in a while as like background characters, but really most of the 11 are glorified extras in this movie. And when it all comes down at the end, instead of having the 11 together like we did last time watching The Fountain, it is just Tess and Danny going to confront the fox. Yeah, as much as I enjoyed his break-in, and even the fact that I could have guessed that they had outsmarted him and gotten to the egg first, yeah, this is not a satisfying team moment. I mean, last time, Jacob, you didn't like it, but I like the scene where they're all at the waterfall reflecting on all their hard work paying off here. Yeah, I don't know what the hell Bernie Mac is doing. I, I Yeah, there should have been 12 people knocking on the door yeah. to tell the fox this. Yeah, you would think that this would be a moment for all of them to gloat and slap backs, but it isn't. What's even more confusing, okay, fine, Julia and Clooney, they, they get their big moment. It seems like the emotional hinge of this film is that we're supposed to care about Isabel getting back with her dad. Like, the music swells, and they've been hiding Lamarck's face the entire time. I don't know why. It's it's not like I can look at Albert Finney and go, oh, yeah, that's that's definitely the father of Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> Can't you see the resemblance? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love Albert Finney, but yeah, I agree that, that she did not spring from his loins. No way. <laughs> and maybe there was a photo, if so, on two watchings, I missed it, of, like, her dad at some point in the background, and we would have gone, oh, it's Albert Finney. But the fact that his identity is so obstructed just clued me and I needed to care more. Yeah, I think that it's scripted. Like, isn't it ironic that this woman that has spent her whole life chasing after this thief and has been neglected her father gets both here in this moment? I, it would be touching if we were invested in her storyline, but those were things that were told to us in passing bits of dialogue while Brad Pitt was mucking it up in the bathroom. I just don't feel like they told us that her story was worthy of tears. And as far as the plot that I did like, paying back Andy Garcia, they pay him back? They do give him double his money? We never see it, which is another way I feel this ending is really ripped off, is we see them walk away. Do we know that the fox is a man of his word that would give Benedict that money? I mean... No, no, we see the office. No, I th Lamarck wrote the check, I thought. Yeah. Lamarck wrote the check? No, the fox was the one who wagered. Lamarck had no part in the fox's wager. I thought Lamarck was behind it all because he knew he ticked off the fox when he said Danny was the better thief. And so he felt bad or something. This movie's a cluster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, good luck trying to parse it out. But these are interesting theories. The way I took this is Lamarck was just having a conversation on a boat and the fox is a prissy French dude who got his panties in a wad. So he did this competition, but Danny knew Lamarck, I guess. And so he reached out to him for aid, and in exchange, they bring back Isabella. 
So I don't think Lamarck had any part of the Fox's competition, and it was the Fox who was going to pay off Benedict if he lost. All right. Well, we do see the Fox casing Benedict at the end, which I thought was humorous. Yeah, yeah. I am confused by this, because what is it supposed to mean? What we're seeing is Reuben giving Terry a check. You're saying that money is coming from Le- Lamarck? No, the Fox. Oh, that was the, he did make good on that. He was a, he did cough up the money. See, I didn't take it that he had coughed up the money. I thought he was paying back in service that they were going to give the money, but they knew that their man who they now owned, they owned Vincent Cassell because I didn't think he could pay that money. And so now he's going to steal it back. They promised they're not going to rip Andy Garcia off again, but the Fox can and they can get it from the Fox then. See, and I took it as Fox paid the money. And now either to prove he's as good as Ocean or because he wants his 200 million back, he's going to now try to rob Benedict. Both are good tax. They needed to pick one and then make us certain that that's what was happening. The fact that we do not know, and some of us have watched (laughs) this movie twice. Yeah, three times. uh, Yeah, that tells you what they made here. And just the fact that I would have no interest in the Fox's quartet or something like that. If that was the sequel (laughs) is Fox versus Benedict. Yes, it's a cheaper cast. Well, maybe not. You say this guy who plays Fox is the Tom Cruise of France, but... We would have gotten more Monica Bellucci. He's married to her, I believe. Was she the cliched sexy assistant? No, no. Monica Bellucci was in Matrix. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, the uh, the one that kisses everyone? The, the Frenchman's wife. Yeah, yes, exactly, okay. yes. yes. Yeah, okay. They're all French. Of course they kiss everyone. <laughs> That's what the French do. I maybe get on line aside with, with getting PC here with your slander of the French. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on now. I'm actually admiring the French for their sexually liberated ways. Yeah, you're just jealous. <laughs> Damn straight. I'm also jealous that I don't think any French person watched this movie three times plus commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Ocean's 12? Jacob. I think what's really telling is the, the final scene in this film. We get the gang coming together. Isabel's there. Tess is there. Everyone's there. And they're just playing poker and having a good time. And I'm not. I'm not having fun watching them. Last week was a party where I was led into the club. And I was able to shake my booty with the gang. Here, I'm kept behind that velvet rope. I'm never allowed in. I'm supposed to be watching celebrities, being celebrities, having fun, and I'm not. It's not enjoyable. This is a convoluted mess. There's a simplicity to last week's film, Ocean's Eleven. Here, too many twists, too convoluted, and nothing that I care about. I don't care about any characters here. This is a not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I think it's a rule of comedy. You don't laugh at your own jokes. I mean, when someone does stand-up, if they're laughing harder than their audience, that's a flop, right? And that's what's happening here. We have very cool movie stars all getting back together, very confident about what they've made in the past, and then yucking it up, not realizing that we're not laughing the way we were last time, and we're not laughing the way that they are on screen. They may be having a great time in Europe, but yeah, this is kind of a drab, ugly little movie. I I will say this. I didn't hate this movie. There's not much I like about it, but it's not vehemence that I meet it with. It's really a shrug. I mean, I just don't care. It is the weakest Oceans movie so far, and that includes the Sinatra movie, but it's not a strong not recommend. I mean, I didn't hate it. 
but I just don't see much about it that's very entertaining. It's watching people I like do not very interesting things and making me nostalgic for a better movie we saw last week. When I saw this movie the first time back in 2005, I was really disgusted because I think worse than a bad movie is let down expectations. And when you have such a strong film as I felt Ocean's Eleven was, even with tempered expectations based upon word of mouth, this one left me crestfallen. Watching it this time, the plot is abysmal. And what we've spent most of our time doing is trying to figure out what the hell's going on in this plot. That said, there's parts of this movie I do really enjoy. There are jokes in this movie that I find work for me. I mentioned a couple of them. There are times when I find myself actually laughing out loud. And so you guys have said a lot of the plot wouldn't matter if you're having a good time. With the Frankie Muniz stuff, with some of the various turnarounds... Frankie Muniz stuff, by the way, is one line you're talking about. You're talking about one-liners here and there. Yes. Not really parts of the movie, but lines. Correct. Another joke I liked is all the ones about Clooney looking 50. I mean, I thought he was 50. I had to look it up when he's getting all offended that people think he's 50. How old did you guys think he was? I thought he was around that. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think he is, right? That he's just, he's having a joke as his vanity. No, he was 43. What? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> There's lines, there's a vibe, there's a rapport between the characters that I enjoyed in this movie. I had an okay time watching it this time around, even though trying to figure out the plot just makes my head hurt. It's a not recommend, but it is a weaker not recommend, whereas okay. I expected this to be a glaringly red, bright, pulsing red. It's a weak not recommend. I think if you enjoyed the first one, there are things in here to enjoy, but it's honestly like taking a metal detector to the beach. You're going to find a thing here or there, but most of the time you're just going to be pretty much looking at bare sand. Well, I think it's a testament to the screenwriter that everyone else came back but him, and this is the difference between last week. I mean, yeah, you gotta have a script. Well, yes, I was surprised after this one they came back, but there is that recovery mode, too. Soderbergh says this is his favorite of the Ocean's trilogy to this Oof. day. And doesn't that just sound like obstinate pride? I'm going to say the one that everyone hated on is my favorite. Yeah, this is like when I had to listen to the Day of the Dead and they got someone who's like, this is the best one. There's there's always one person that likes the worst one the most. <laughs> yeah, well, the obstinance is if you listen to the commentary, he goes, if you didn't like this movie, you just haven't watched it enough. The more you watch it, the more you'll like it. <laughs> I don't want to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's funny. <laughs> they should have had more jokes like that in the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But whether it was Soderbergh's intent all along to have a trilogy or whether I think a lot of times after a bad one, people just don't want it to end on such a dour note and taint the whole franchise. Three years later, everyone was back for Ocean's 13, except for, of course, the women. <laughs> except for the females. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. I don't know who's coming back. There's another number has been added, so I'll be interested to know who it is. I think it's Al Pacino. I have no idea. But I'm hoping for a party because God knows it's New Year's. This hasn't been a great way to blow it out, but I'm hoping for good things in the New Year. Yeah, this is more like the hangover after New Year's than yeah, New Year's. Yeah, exactly. This movie is actually better than the Ocean's movie that took place on New Year's, if that's any consolation. No, 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 no. No, it isn't. Give me the Rat Pack any day over this Yeah, one. I agree. <laughs> I'll take Bruce Willis's Sixth Sense jokes over any of the 
prank phone call humor in that one. But yes, Happy New Year to everyone, and that means just a couple hours left when the final time zone is hung over and the confetti is stuck to their coats by alcohol glue. Private story, ask me sometime in person. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't even know that story. <laughs> then you do, you just forgot. When all that happens, then you will not be able to hear our review of Lord of the Rings. You know you want to. That movie opened huge. Everybody's talking about it. Some because they are celebrating that they loved it. Others because they're celebrating that it's over. Yeah, I want to see how they stretch it out to a third one. That's why I, I saw it. Yep, the shows are all done, and uh, the vault is open and ready for entry. So, yes, take advantage of the next few hours, having the opportunity to get our fall 2014 shows for it seals on the stroke of midnight that's leprechaun for gold lord of the rings for silver and everything including three animated movies for platinum so all of that stuff becomes unavailable in just a few hours and more importantly it's your donation that will keep us going in 2015 we need your donations to keep doing this show so thank you all for your support, not just in this donation drive, but through the whole year for downloading, for listening, for coming to our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, our forums, sharing your thoughts on these movies. Especially thank you to those who did it politely. <laughs> so thank you all. And until next time, it's time for a little less conversation, a little more action. Now, I have complied with your every request. Would you agree? I would. Good, because now I have one of my own. Run and hide, asshole. Run and hide. If you should be picked up next week buying a $100,000 sports car in Newport Beach, I am going to be supremely disappointed because I want my people to find you. And when they do, rest assured, we're not going to hand you over to the police. So. My advice to you again is this, run and hide. That is all that I ask. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. This is just the best part of my day. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. It's fun time, Jimmy boy. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archive, you can find reviews of other films, such as all the James Bond films, The Avengers, Robocop, Rambo, Die Hard, Saw, and hundreds more. What, did you guys get a group rate or something? While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this movie review with other listeners. They told me to come see you. Oh, did they? Well, I'm sure glad they did. They did. That's what they told me. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. I almost, I almost wasn't going to come over and say anything. Then I'd still be sleeping. And please remember, your support is what keeps Now Playing operating. Our fall 2014 pledge drive is coming to a close. Support independent podcasting and get exclusive, bonus, Lord of the Rings or Leprechaun movie reviews. Even when we aren't running a pledge drive, you can donate using the PayPal button at our website all year round. 
Find the PayPal button as well as all the details at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I'd have to pay you by check. Let's, or we could just stick to cash. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's just stick to cash. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. That guy's a machine. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Been practicing the speech a little bit, did I rush it? Felt like I was good, I liked it. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Studios. The Ocean's films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This town, your luck can change just that quickly. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. I love technology. Because to look at you, I'd swear you were being evasive. But the machine says you're clean. I'm just a little nervous. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I'll turn that off, will you? I'll turn it off when I'm ready to turn it off. It's off, it's off. Starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Andy Garcia, Don Cheadle, Bernie Mac, Julia Roberts, Elliot Gould, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Eddie Jamison, Don Cheadle, Shabo Quinn, Carl Reiner. And- Don Cheadle in this twice? Did I say it twice? Fuck, yes. that's what I get for looking at two cast lists. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to make sure he gets him in there. He, was so he didn't get booked last time. his lower ranking. He was in above the title last time. <laughs> Didn't see it, and I saw a lot of Soderbergh. I saw all the duds God, that you're, made you're it. Really modulating. I know. I can even hear myself over the modulating. <laughs> there was even a cut scene that extends that, where Livingston like thanks him for letting him finish the set, and Benedict's like, "What can I say? You're a funny guy." <laughs> <laughs> no, that's in the movie. That was in the movie? Yeah. Yeah, it was in my oh, cut. Okay, I thought that was in the deleted scenes. The deleted scenes kind of sucked, so. All right, cut that. <laughs> Make that a deleted scene. Yeah, speaking <laughs> of deleted. <laughs> I do like this beginning. I like getting the band back together. I'm a fan of the Blues Brothers. I don't think that we'll ever cover it, so I can not spoil our future non-review that won't ever happen. Really? You don't think they'll reboot the Blues Brothers? I'm sure it's coming. Even if they did, you'll then say you don't want to do comedy. So, <laughs> and I'd, and we've never covered a musical. No, I don't want to do Blues Brothers 2000 is what I don't want to do. <laughs> but... And she had just done one, yeah. Where, where she does the ass under the ropes thing. I thought that was J-Lo. <laughs> no, it was her. <laughs> 
blooper continuity. <laughs> you have to listen to the bloopers. Oh, from that's the last right. One. That's right. <laughs> bloopers from this one. Like the movies, the jokes are just going to get more inside. <laughs> The fox. I almost called him Le Fox. I don't know. <laughs> Le Fox. <laughs> Le Big Mac. 